Awareness, the final frontier. These are the explorations of Jonathan Robinson and Brian Tom O'Connor. Their continuing mission, to discover fresh new paths to the mystery within. To seek out new joys and new methods of awakening. To boldly go into the heart of expanded consciousness. This is Awareness Explorers. Welcome back, Awareness Explorers. It's really great to have you back. And I say this every time, but I'm very excited. I'm more than excited because uh, the man that we're going to have as our guest explorer today has probably influenced my life as much as anybody has in a positive way. That's uh, Dr. Jeffrey Martin. But before we introduce Jeffrey, I want to say hi to my co-host. Brian Tom O'Connor. How are you doing, Brian? I'm doing really, really well, and I'm also looking forward to uh, to this episode, um, having read The Finders, a, a wonderful book, and I think that we could probably have a separate episode on every chapter in the book. Yeah, we really could. And Jeffrey Martin's written a lot of books, but I want to tell you a little bit about his background. Before I do that, I do want to mention that we've been getting a lot of uh, donations through Patreon, and we really appreciate it because it pays our expenses and... If you're interested in getting extra stuff around the podcast, you can go to patreon.com slash awareness explorers and donate as little as a dollar a month and get some extra stuff from us. It's all spelled out on our Patreon page. And we really appreciate not just your donations, but your emails and kind words. It, uh, it feels like a family. So thank you for that. But let's get to the action today, which is um, Jeffrey Martin. Let me say a little bit about Dr. Martin. He's a scientist, a technologist, an entrepreneur, an investor who focuses on advancing the highest forms of human well-being. He has conducted the largest international study into ongoing persistent forms of what he calls non-symbolic experience, but it's often been called enlightenment, non-duality, things like that. Uh, sometimes he refers to it as just fundamental well-being. And Dr. Martin has used his research to make protocols and information available that help people obtain profound psychological benefits in a rapid, reliable, and safe way. I took uh, the Finders course, which was amazing. Uh, recently, he made it even easier and more available for people in a course called 45 Days to Awakening. And you can learn about that at uh, 45, number 45, daystoawakening.com. And I definitely encourage you to look into that. It's very powerful and now really available for a lot of the people at an inexpensive price too. So thanks for doing all of that, Jeffrey, and influencing me and so many other people. And welcome to Awareness Explorers. Well, thanks. It's great to be with you. Thanks so much for that kind introduction. That was wonderful. Yeah. So, you know, with someone like you, it's like, where do you start? You've done uh, so many things, you know, I, I, I starting to list questions. I came up with about 40 and then I, I got down to a few. Um, one question I have, I'll start off with is obviously in your study of enlightened people, we'll call it enlightened people, awakened people. Mm-hmm. What were some of the things that really stood out to you that maybe were a surprise to you or you had not expected? Gosh, you know, I think everything <laughs> was a surprise to me, frankly. 
um, you know, I didn't have a tremendous background in this type of stuff, right? I mean, I was looking for more well-being. Uh, and so I was looking for the populations that I thought had the most well-being so that I could join them. Um, and so it wasn't like I'd like, you know, read a ton of spiritual books about enlightenment for the previous 30 years or uh, or something like that. I'd been in and out of it a little bit because I'd read my way through a lot of the world's major religions and philosophies um, and stuff like that. Right. And so that, you know, folded into corners of that here and there. Um, so I didn't have I didn't actually have a lot of expectations when I started moving in this direction, people started to put expectations into my head in terms of what I would find. Like they said, oh, you're never going to find anybody, you know, that'll talk to you. There's like maybe three enlightened people in the world or whatever, you know, how will you find them? How will you reach them? And so that was an interesting expectation uh, that a lot of people seem to have around this. Um, there were expectations around perfection, you know, that these would be perfect beings, perfect health, you know, sort of like their paths paved with gold and uh, things like that. And so I would say more or less everything everybody put in my head wound up being wrong. Uh, there wound up being millions of people probably that are in, you know, fundamental well-being. They wound up um, being in all states of health and, you know, whatever else and all sorts of life circumstances. And, and so more or less anything that anybody told me when I was just starting to get into this, it all really just wound up being wrong and, and everything wound up being a surprise. And then, you know, I started with spiritual teachers and religious leaders because uh, we were trying trying to figure out how to make it, um, you know, how to justify the population that had been chosen for research. And so one of the things that I did is I went around to a lot of, you know, heavyweights in the academic world that were interested in this. Um, some of them publicly interested in it, some of them just privately interested in it, not wanting to sort of jeopardize their wider, you know, more established careers and stuff around it, right? And I said, how would you look into this? How would you begin looking into this in a way that, you know, 10 years from now, you wouldn't then look at the research output and be like, oh, that's all crap because it's built on this soft foundation that's not believable, right? How yeah. should I start this basically, right? Um, and what they said was to a person, you know, they basically all had the same advice, which is, you know, find people who are part of an established system, part of an established community, so that the community can validate that, the, that they're where they say they are in the system and all of that. And so that's why we began with these spiritual teachers and religious leaders um, and stuff like that, that we're not just making those claims themselves or having other people make those, you know, one or two other people make those claims about them, but we're, you know, more widely validated, I guess you would say. Yeah. Uh, and I, then the thing that surprised me about that was that when I would ask those people um, who else they could refer us to, because I thought, okay, well, that's great. We'll start there and we'll just sort of snowball from there because those people know tons of other people, uh, you know, that are in this, um, but they didn't. Uh, so the other thing that surprised me right away was how unsuccessful even major spiritual teachers were at transitioning uh, people to this. And I had many candid conversations with these folks where they were just puzzled by it. Uh, and even, I would say, frustrated by it. You know, have, imagine having spent like 50 years trying to get people to fundamental well-being and being able to refer me to like two people, uh, you know, or then, something like that. I mean, it's like been, crazy, right? You must have been even further surprised when you started, say, the Finders Course and 45 Days to Awakening to find that it wasn't that hard if you had the right technique. 
Yeah. Eventually we started to hit people. Like I remember I was with this uh, student, I think he was an undergrad in Canada and he had like just monkeyed around with the meditations for a couple of days and transitioned. Right. And so we also had, you know, you know, we also had people like this. Right. And so in my mind, I knew, okay, wait a minute. There's like a disconnect here between some people who are doing this for decades and other people who are doing this for like an hour and a half. Um, You know, and there's there's more to the story, you know, clearly. So that's why I wasn't really that surprised uh, by the matching thing or it answered a lot of questions around anomalies like that that I'd Mm -hmm. seen. I'd seen plenty of those people that had dicked around with something for an hour and a half. Right. And transitioned effectively. Um, It's not just an hour and a half. Right. But a week or, you know, a few days or something like that. Right. And, you know, he was following that, incidentally, that student was following sort of the standard path. He was like, you know, he was a social work student, if I remember right. And he was like, you know, I'm going to drop out of social work school. I feel like I should be a spiritual teacher. I'm like, okay, well, maybe that's not such a good idea based on what I've talked to from all of these other teachers. Like, maybe finish your degree, you know, wrap up social work. Uh, So anyway. Well, Well, that's another thing that, you know, in reading and knowing about some of these people that I interviewed as well, that they don't they don't end up as perfect people who are necessarily good at anything in the world. Right. And, and that can be confusing because we often, you know, we think of Jesus, Buddha as perfect. They, they knew everything they, you know, et cetera. But um, just because you awaken to a certain degree or even to a very high degree um, sometimes just gives you trouble in the world. For sure. And, you know, and it's funny, right? This notion of perfection. Like I remember somebody, uh, one, one person that I met at a conference or something that I was talking at, uh, was asking me who I was going to interview next. And if I was going to interview this person that was in the same town as them or whatever else. And I said, yeah, you know, I've, uh, I'll be interviewing that person. And there's this other person who's here. And the, and the person was like, oh, I know that person. And I had dinner with them one time and they like spit a couple of pieces of food out over dinner. So there's no way they're enlightened. You should not waste your time. You know, with them. Like, they spit a couple, really? Like this is a high bar for, <laughs> for perfection. One that I would never pass. Some either. of these experts, right? It's like, all right, we're, none of us may ever be enlightened by that definition, you know? Yeah. Um, and so it's, it's these experts, Expectations are, are very interesting, I think, on the part of the public, you know. Yeah. But I love the fact that you use the term fundamental well-being to define it as opposed to, say, enlightenment or knowledge of universal truth, partly because it seems to me that anyone who starts seeking is really looking for fundamental well-being ultimately. And perhaps maybe they think enlightenment might be the way to do that. And um, also, it sort of gives it its sort of non-denominational aspect. But I, you also call it, I believe, um, persistent non-symbolic experience. And I find that really interesting, too, because uh, are they synonymous, or does one cause the other, or what's the relationship between those? <laughs> That's a good question. So PNSE, or persistent non-symbolic experience, or originally persistent non-symbolic consciousness, which is why it's called the Center for the Study of Non-Symbolic Consciousness. But that's actually a term that is used on the academic side of the fence. Oh. And so if you ever read any of our stuff, you know, that's on that side, um, you'll see that we don't use the term fundamental well-being. We use the term persistent non-symbolic experience. 
Um, and so that's basically our academic term for it. it. It stems from, it's not something that emerged from what we discovered in the research, actually. It's, some, it's a term that we used in order to get people to participate in the research. And so in the very earliest days of the research, we had a lot of difficulty getting people to participate because they didn't believe that science could study what um it's sort of funny like the science side of the fence didn't believe that it could be studied right they believed that there were all these magical claims around it and stuff and so it was like something that wasn't really applicable to the study within science right which is why we had to be so careful and take on you know really listen to those senior mentors and all of that um and then on the participant side it was like the same thing like they were like oh science will never understand this it's a waste of time to sit down with you uh that type of thing right and so we had a lot of problems with language initially and getting people to to sit down with us. And so we would say, you know, we would look at their book or something or books or web pages or religion or something. And we would try to use the same language that they used for it, you know, and surprisingly, that didn't work out very well. Uh, lots of times because the language that they were using was from sort of earlier in their life or earlier in their career and their own understanding had evolved beyond it. And so if they were using consciousness on their webpage, they may no longer believe it had anything to do with consciousness, for instance, or if they were using, you know, whatever, Right. And so we would go in with these words and they would be like, you're never going to understand this. You know, you're a waste of time to sit down with. And so we started to just create lists of words to test with people. And persistent non-symbolic experience comes from a 2000 paper from a, an amazing developmental psychologist, one of the world's greatest developmental psychologists, Suzanne Cook-Greuter. Um, and she used for this type of thing, a term, uh, non-symbolically mediated consciousness. It wasn't like the main term that she used for it. She had another term that she used for it. But she had this word in this sentence, and I thought, hey, that's pretty good. Let's put that on the list to test. And, Nobody you know, the first person that, that we used it was, pardon? Nobody can disagree with that. They don't know what it means. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's interesting because it resonates. There's yeah. something about it that resonates, right? And so when I used it with the first person on the phone, um, there was like this pause, and they were like, yeah, yeah, okay. Well, when do you want to meet? Yeah. Um, and more or less, it became persistent non-symbolic consciousness for a long time after that. And then we learned that more people, too many people had problems with the word consciousness. And so we shifted it to experience. Fewer people had problems with the word experience. And so it became persistent non-symbolic experience. And it's been that ever since, basically. Uh -huh. But even you know, apart from the fact that it helped you uh, um get people. I can sort of see why people would resonate with it, because it seems that, well, if you talk about symbolic experience, the, all, our language is all about symbolic experience, and our language is what is used to make distinctions between things, and it's what veils the unity behind things. So it makes, makes perfect sense to me, that term. Um, yeah, I think so, too. You know, the, there is it, it certainly does seem like the mind is primarily symbolic. It turns everything into a symbol that pushes those symbols around and manipulates those symbols, that type of thing. So when you start talking about going beyond the mind, in essence, you are talking about going beyond that, you know, just being trapped by that symbolic, you know, only system. Right. And so I can I also can now see why that I didn't understand at the time why that would make any sense to people. I just, you know, was testing phrases. Right. Uh, but I agree. Now I can understand. Mm -hmm. You know, you did a lot of research on a lot of different techniques. Did you notice that any particular belief or technique seemed to be particularly helpful to, you know, uh, almost everybody? No, yeah, unfortunately not. Um, in fact, I think the most successful techniques are successful for like two to 5% of people probably oh. at any given time. Um, 
And that, you know, that's really not that surprising if you think about where we're at today, because the mind is so deeply entrenched. You know, we have gone so deeply into the symbolic uh, mind uh, and attention is so fragmented and everything else. I, I like to, you know, talk about this experience that one of our researchers had researching in, in Myanmar and in Burma, uh, whichever, you know, phrase you want to, whichever label you want to use for that country these days. I notice some people prefer one, some people are offended by the other. It's like, so I just use them both just to be safe. Um, and there's this big Theravada Buddhist tradition there. And there were some super heavy hitter folks at the time. Um, now, most of them, if not all of them have passed on since we did that research. They were really at sort of the end of their teaching, but we were able to go there and research with them and whatnot. And while our researcher was there, she encountered some nuns that were like these 90-year-old nuns. And the interesting thing about those 90-year-old nuns is that when they were, you know, 17-year-old nuns uh, and people would come to the monastery uh, slash retreat center slash ashram slash whatever you want to think of it as, you know, people would basically transition within a week or so to what Theravada Buddhism would call stream entry, right? Which we definitely, you know, stream entry to us is definitely on the non-symbolic continuum, right? And so... Over time, it had reached a point. And in fact, see, they had funny stories about it. They were like, you know, some people were slower and they needed a little extra attention in the second week. But then, you know, we were able to get them there. Yeah. Uh, it's just like, I guess it was just this adorable sort of interviews with these old with these old nuns, right? Uh, and, and they had an even funnier line than that. They basically said that if somebody was still there after a month, they called the army because they knew that they were just hiding out. Like it was literally impossible to stay there for a month and not transition. Right. It was, was, the, was the moral of that story. Right. And so, you know, fast forward to today, you, ask, you know, our researcher asked the same question and they're like, well, you know, if people come for a few months, they can make progress. Um, you know, it was like a total difference in effectiveness. And so our researcher said, what do you think it was? And they thought, and this is all anecdotal, of course, in, in their own observation, but they thought that as different forms of media had come into their country over time, which was lagging, you know, other countries in terms yeah. of media adoption, um, that they could really sort of see attention changing, human consciousness changing. Um, and it seemed like the more of that came in, the less their effect, the less effective their methods became. And they were very traditionalist. And so they didn't change or adapt their methods or anything like that. And so I, you know, I think today something like that that might work for two or three or 4% of people at any given time very effectively, it doesn't mean it was always not effective. You know, I mean, there are people alive who remembered when it was completely effective, yeah. you know, for their hope. Now, who knows if that was tuned to a population genetically or culturally or whatever else, right? Maybe you take that, you move it to Europe and it wouldn't have had that same degree of effectiveness that it had, you know, 70 years ago uh, or whatever. But there's, there's little clues like this that things can be more effective in the research. And those are the clues that made us look at some of these things that did rise to effectiveness. And that, that their thing was Theravada noting, uh, basically, like a Buddhist noting technique, which is, you know, that type of noting is used in a lot of different cultures and a lot of different traditions in different ways. And so, you know, I think it's a question of looking at that and saying, what is it that can make this more effective 
today. And, and somebody that I think did that really well is, is someone who participated in our early research and our early construction of the protocol, Kenneth Falk, uh, who developed a social noting aspect to it, where he discovered that if you did, you know, if you did a slight twist on the way that they did their noting and you did it ping pong fashion back and forth with, an, with at least one other person, um, it basically kept you in it more. And then it was a more effective method than it yeah, was. I, I, I love that method and it works amazingly well for me. Uh, and, and yeah, subtle little changes can make all the difference. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's like an update. You, you have these little tweaks that you can make to update it for modern content, some big tweaks, like that was a huge revolution from Ken. Yeah. Right. Um, but then also little tweaks, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you right? found that there were, um, that different things worked for different people so that when you started, um, transitioning from the research part of your project to, to the finders course and then and now to the 45 day course, you, you said that there was a kind of a greatest hits list that kind of rose to the surface of, of things that tended to work, but that because you couldn't guarantee one would work for one person, you ask them to try several of them. Um, right. Yeah. And even the order that you put stuff in turned out to really matter. Mm -hmm. um, and also we combine it with positive psychology stuff. And we especially front load the first part of the protocol with positive psychology stuff. And that wound up being really important too. And so there's a, there's like a, it's, it's a really kind of complicated cocktail but I think when people use it, I hope to, when they use it, it seems very simple. It's like, okay, this week you're going to do this, you know, or whatever. Right. But there's a lot of tweaks and there's a lot of things that really went into sort of getting that protocol the way in the, in the shape it is today, you know, but it's based on results and not on dogma. Yeah. It's entirely based on results. We measure everything to the nth degree. You know? Yeah. As Jonathan will tell you, but he's probably still trying to recover from his, you know, post-traumatic stress from all of the pre and post scientific measures that we yeah, require. In the finders course, there was a lot of measurement, not, not so much anymore. <laughs> It'll only be a few more years. You'll be past that trauma. Don't worry. It'll be. I hope so. <laughs> but of course, because, you know, on awareness explorers, <clears throat> we focus on awareness practices. I was happy to see that awareness practices did kind of rise to, to the top, uh, sure. or at least towards the top of the list. And yeah. uh, as a matter of fact, if you wouldn't mind, uh, you wrote about, uh, in The Finders, you wrote about awareness. And I just want to quote you on this, because uh, I love this quote. Uh, there appears to be something that contains and perceives thoughts, emotions, information from our senses, and even our sense of self, a perception that is always on when we are aware, fundamental being pulls this awareness from its hidden background location into view. The shift of perspective this causes is central to much of what a finder experiences. And this is, I found that so fascinating and so also in line with what we talk about on this podcast that I had to bring it up and, uh, and, and, uh, maybe ask you to, do you have any, any other, or did that sum it up or do you have anything other <laughs> else to say about your experience with awareness practices? You know, that does sum it up to a great uh, degree. One thing that we did with the book, you know, I love uh, Ken Wilber uh, a great deal. Uh, and I think he's probably in a lot of our heads and, you know, he's, I've, I, I've enjoyed, you know, his work that he's shared publicly and I've enjoyed private conversations, you know, that I've had with him. 
Um, but I did not want to wind up doing the same thing that he did publicly, right? Which is, it's sort of hard to know, like, because there's like Wilbur 1, Wilbur 2, Wilbur 3, Wilbur 4, Wilbur 5 that people talk about, right? It's sort of, I didn't want to release a book and then have to revise it and revise it and, you know, and have it shift over the years. And so that book has had basically been in development for over 10 years, being written and rewritten, shared with all of the finders course people. And they were all asked for comments and what they didn't understand and asked to evaluate it. And, you know, really hundreds, if not maybe thousands even of people read it um, before it was released. Um, and so it really does say, uh, yeah, I didn't release it until I was pretty confident that there shouldn't be a Martin two or a Martin three, you know, or whatever that related to that work. But one thing that I will say, uh, in addition, just methodologically about, um, awareness is if you were to say to me, you can only choose one category of things to build a protocol around, you know, what would you choose? Would you choose mantras? Would you choose noting? Would you choose direct inquiry? Would you choose, you know, some cognitive hack? Um, like, you know, what is it that you would choose? And I would absolutely choose awareness. Um, awareness is probably a very, some form of awareness practice is effective, we think, for at least 50 percent of people, you know. Um, and so I think that if I were to develop uh, some mainstream simplified product that I wanted to, you know, have as many people be able to use over a weekend or something as possible, I would go through the awareness stuff and really try to think of it through that lens. Um, because one thing that one thing that we learned is that um, we, we learned that it was better to put the awareness techniques before other techniques generally. Now, it's not entirely true. There are some, there's like a, a body-based Vipassana type of practice um, that's a very traditional form of that that we've modified fairly heavily actually these look like little tweaks but they're pretty significant tweaks uh, that we've made to it and so that's definitely in the first part of the program that lays a foundation to make the awareness stuff more impactful but it's that stuff isn't so much what transitions people generally as the awareness aspects of it and as the awareness stuff that then sort of comes in in association with that. And so, so I, I, I think awareness, you know, is, is really where it's at. If you have to just pick one thing and go with one thing and try one thing, if you're going to try some stuff first, and I know Jonathan found a book a while back. I remember us talking about this at a friend, mutual friend's house where it's like a bunch of awareness practices and exercises and, and stuff to go through, you know, something like that is probably a really great idea. It was probably Brian's book called Awareness Games. Oh, okay. Yeah, sure. Probably was. <laughs> well, congrats. That's great. That's okay. really great, Brian, because I think something like that is, you know, is really ideal and profoundly helpful probably to a maximum number of people, you know, a good place to start to see if that's going to work for you, really. Yeah, yeah. You know, I was um, surprised that uh, you also teach something called the advanced course. I'm not sure. Are you still teaching that? That's still around? Not really. No. Okay. Well, I was surprised that the advanced course is partly about what could be called spiritual transmissions, mm -hmm. which I had always, you know, put in with you're talking to the Pleiadians and, and other stuff. <laughs> right. um, although I've been around gurus where I was so impacted by their energy that right. I would be in uh, extremely high state anytime I was around them. But the fact that you're a scientist and that you were giving it 
credibility and, you know, try this, try that. What can you say about this whole transmission area, which is now getting more popular, that might be useful to people in exploring that whole concept? Yeah, it's, it is. I agree. It's getting a lot more popular. One of the, So I released that course because I was concerned about our alumni community. And what was happening is um, in the Finders course alumni community, we had a lot of people who were starting to experiment with these different forms of transmission. And I picked up some knowledge about this, you know, over the course of, you know, 10 years or whatever it had been to that point of sitting down with all of these spiritual teachers all over the world. Right. Uh, and just to be clear, our sample isn't just spiritual teachers, right? There's a lot mm -hmm. of ordinary people that comprise our research uh, sample, but in the early days, it was a lot of these spiritual teachers, right? And a certain percentage of them were really into transmission. And so, you know, you're spending a day with them talking about their talking about this stuff, right? I mean, it's, it's going to come up and their knowledge and their perspective and their viewpoint is going to come up. And I'd also experienced situations where people didn't weren't didn't necessarily even talk about it. Uh, but similar to you, you know, not so much that they would throw me into some higher state of consciousness or something, but it would, uh, it would blank out my mind uh, after spend after being with them for a couple of minutes, which is not good when you're there to interview them. <laughs> I mean, that's a bit of a problem. Yeah. yeah. What's so, my name again? Right. You know, so, I, you know, I, I had to learn to sort of block, if you will, uh, whatever was going on there. You know, over time, I really learned to prevent it from affecting me so that I could do my job, for lack of a better phrase, or continue with the research or yeah. uh, whatever, right? And there were times, sometimes when I, I remember I was at dinner one time with one of these people, a long-term research subject, one of our longer term. We have some that we keep long-term to get representative samples over many years. And, you know, I sat down to dinner with them. And um, I, after a very short period of time, I just felt like I was going to pass out. And so uh, I excused myself. I went into the bathroom. I stood with my back against the wall, just trying not to pass out. And, you know, I went back to the table, whatever, 10 minutes later or something. Right. And he just looked at me and he was like, I'm sorry about that. I wasn't thinking about it. Uh, <laughs> so it's, he's like, I toned it down. <laughs> like I didn't say anything to him. Right. As far as he knew, I had to go to the bathroom. Um, and so, you know, I had a lot of um, very anomalous sort of um, things, a lot of knowledge um, about it. Um, and I also had experience with it from earlier in my life. I became interested in um, in sort of spiritual healing type stuff around, you know, my late teens, early 20s, when my mom got cancer, when I was feeling very disempowered, I was in TV at the time. Um, and I just felt like, you know, wow, there's nothing that I can do to help my mom, you know, and it just so happened that that weekend, like somebody came to town teaching Reiki. Um, and so I had all of these anomalous experiences involving Reiki, where the very first person I worked on, it basically healed a bone that was going to go in for surgery uh, the following week, right? And there's like, you know, this pre-op, there's this x-ray from a week before of this wrist with a bunch of bones floating around in it. And then there's an x-ray, you know, the next week, a pre-op x-ray for a surgery that never happened, you know, where the wrist never had anything wrong with it, right? And I mean, how do yeah. you explain stuff like that, right? I mean, when it's happening in your own life under your own hands and you're feeling heat and pressure and tingling and stuff in your hands while it's happening, like, you know, I, I don't know what to make of that, right? I tried to do some research around that back in the day. It wound up being almost impossible to reliably research as many other people after me found that were trying to research it, right? 
But if you fast forward to to you know today, uh, and now there's these people transmitting this some something right. Something is something is making me try to pass out. Something is blanking out my mind. I don't know. Maybe they're like gushing some pheromone or something, right? I mean, yeah. I don't know what it is, but it's it's something that doesn't seem to be easy to track. And so my mind went back to those early days of these people that were talking about healing people at a distance, you know, with things like Reiki and stuff like that. And I couldn't deny that I'd seen a lot of miracles. Well, it seemed very much like miracles underneath my hands during that very short window of time uh, when I was sort of practicing that. And so, and, you know, if you if you then if you fast forward to today um, and you and you look at what's out there, so one of the things that my knowledge had given me of all of these people was like, okay, like probably best to avoid that person's transmission. Um, you know, probably okay to be in that person's version of transmission and whatnot. But all of that data was governed by confidentiality because yeah. the research was governed by confidentiality. I don't think any enlightened teacher or whatever would have ever sat down with me if they thought there was some chance that I was going to create a ranking of like who was more enlightened than other people, right? Or if I was going to say, you know, their spiritual they so I have all these great stories about their spiritual transmissions really, you know, putting people in mental wards yeah. or what I mean like, you know, in order to really get an honest open exchange with the research subjects, they had to be guaranteed anonymity. And we've held that anonymity to today. I anticipate that we'll hold it forever. Uh, And so I wasn't able for our research subjects that come along later that participate in the finders course experiments to say, oh, you know what? I know a lot about that person's transmission. You really should avoid that. Uh, That could end very badly for you, like in terms of like institutionalization and such. Right. And so I had to find another way to sort of educate them that did not violate the ethics or the commitments of the research. And that's where the advanced course really came from. Uh, So the advanced course was really designed only for finders course alumni. And it was designed to address really that very specific problem, a way for me to share knowledge in a generic enough way that didn't violate, um, you know. Now, I I think that there is interesting stuff going on in this space. You know, there are certainly systems of transmission that we've researched where it does appear that, you know, people are in fundamental well-being, you know, that are a part of those systems. And you interview those people and they, you know, they're like, well, this is all I do. I just take this person's thing. And I know I haven't meditated a million other ways or I don't. Matter. In fact, I hate meditating. Uh, like I took, I did this because I don't have to meditate. It's great. You know, and so they don't, it's not like they're doing a bunch of other things that are confounding variables. There does seem to be something, you know, yeah. in some of these systems. So I think this year we, I would really like to begin a more rigorous research project around that. I started to reach out over the last month or so to some of the, to some of really the leading people. And I've also started to work with some other scientists to try to figure out what would be a very strong initial uh, protocol for this that would really allow with a pilot experiment you're always trying to just basically get a go no go for more research right and mm-hmm. so you know, what is it that could give us the go no go signal you know what is it that could basically say oh no this is all placebo um or you know oh there's something real happening in this well, circumstance. You, you can do things like measure people's brain waves and such that would give you some you can but that's really expensive to do uh Uh for a pilot right and so for you know to 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 before you start investing um that kind of 
you know, it's very expensive to do anyway. You know, what I think the protocol is going to be is essentially this. I think it's, and I won't tell you all of it because uh, because that would potentially affect the experiment, right? But the, but the gist is having transmitters or senders or whatever we want to call it and receivers and having them be in isolated environments and having them not have a connection to each other through Zoom or through a phone call or anything like that. So like you, you, you know, Monday at six o'clock Pacific time, you are to sit down for an hour and, you know, something may or may not happen to you. Right. And somewhere else in the world, somebody is going to be sitting down trying to see if they can get, you know, something to happen to you. You don't have any idea who that is. You don't know anything about that person. You don't know, you know, you haven't been viewing kind of kind of like the remote viewing experiments. I mean, yeah, you know, a little, not really, a little bit. Um, And so the, and and so you're just, you then, you know, we will collect data pre and post, like what was your mood going into this? Were you having a good day, bad day, that kind of stuff that can help us to maybe sort out, okay, well, when people have bad days, boy, they have great experiences with this stuff, right? Or when they have bad days, they don't have any experience with this stuff or whatever. Uh So we try to get some of those confounds you know, enough data around some of those confounds. And then, you know, just say, okay, what, you know, did you experience anything on the other side of it? So it's all qualitative data, which is extremely expensive and, 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 you know, complicated and whatnot to work with. Um, So there's a lot of messiness. Do you have any practical advice for people who are exploring that area? Like, you know, uh, like in a certain way, Christianity is a transmission, you know, you gain Holy Spirit. Do people, yeah, learn, do people learn to open up to it. transmissions? You know, I think personally transmissions are something to be extremely careful of. Okay. Uh, I am not a public, you know, big advocate of, uh, of transmissions. Um, okay. it's, it's a complex area. It's, and it can be dangerous sometimes. It can be really dangerous. Uh-huh. Uh, whatever's going on there, I don't know. We don't know what's going on there yet, you know. Uh, like you suggest, we would go from a pilot like that, that's a blinded pilot, and then if it suggests that there is something that's worth looking into, to something that does involve probably GSR, skin temperature, EEG, you know, things like that, and probably from on the part of both the senders and the receivers, you know, and you need a probably a pretty good-sized number of people, I'd say maybe 100 people or something, mm-hmm. as at least receivers and maybe 10 to 20 diverse senders. Well, while we're on the subject of weird stuff... Because I know some people who took the finders course and they started to get like psychic powers and, and other things. <laughs> and those can be dangerous. But what would you say is the relationship between higher levels of consciousness and psychic things? Is there a relationship or is it pretty much not a relationship? I think that's a great question. And we have really, you know, paid attention to that for many, many years now, starting with our earliest research. And one of the things that we found is that most of the people who have both consider them two very separate things. And lots of times that's because they came in at different times. And oftentimes their intuitive abilities or their unusual vision, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Where they might see angels or they might see whatever. Um, A lot of time that comes in earlier than fundamental well-being. And so for them, you know, it's just very natural for them to regard it as sort of 
a separate thing. Some of those people are embedded in systems where there's a lot of belief around, like, if you are in fundamental well-being, these things, you know, should happen to you. And then, of course, those people are really venerated and they're really looked to as some sort of example of, you know, wow, you've really got the, com you've, you've got the complete thing that we're supposed to get, you know, in this Hindu system or in this whatever system, right? And But when you actually sit down with those individuals and you dig into this question with them, you discover that they actually consider it very separate. And so I think that's one important data point in terms of, you know, what's out there sort of organically. It does appear that as one goes deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper into fundamental well-being, that, you know, this phenomena is reported more. But we're talking about oftentimes very deep levels, right? And so I think it's I think there's probably a few things happening here. In one circumstance, you've got people that just have some sort of natural proclivity to it. Uh, lots of times it comes online before they're in fundamental well-being. In another circumstance, you have people that also sort of had a natural proclivity to it, often remember it being the case for them in childhood, had it shut off at some point in childhood. They'll transition to some more mild form of fundamental well-being, and they may have that come back. That's certainly not everybody or even a majority of people that remembers that stuff from childhood, but it is some percentage um, yeah. of people. Um, and so then you have a third case, which is people that really, really go far into fundamental well-being. Uh, I think one could even say as far as being not that functional in the world anymore. And those people um, do report a covariance of this type of stuff, right? And so it's a, it's a complicated landscape. Mm -hmm. Right? Well, fortunately, though, from your research, uh, People transition in many, many different ways, some um, by practicing certain uh, traditions and some just almost happening without their effort, seemingly. So there's a wide, sure. wide variety. And that, and, that I, and that I found fascinating. But one thing that does seem central that you talk about in the book is the reduction of, I think you call it the narrative self. And this seems so key and, and fascinating to me because uh, identity, shift in identity seems so central to fundamental well-being. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and I think identity is a really good way to put it. Um, it's often in spiritual circles been put as like a loss of self, your self goes away, you go away or whatever, which people, you know, that terrifies the heck out of the average person. Uh, one of the things that we discovered in a survey, I think, this year or last year, I can't remember when we did, if we did it earlier this year or, or last year, was that that is actually a huge barrier to people transitioning is their fear of transitioning. You know, they read a story like Eckhart Tolle's, you know, being on a park bench for two years and something, and they're like, I can't let that happen to me. Right. And so it's like they want as many of the benefits as possible. <laughs> Right. Uh -huh. But they don't actually want to fall off into the deep end for fear that, you know, they'll wind up on a park bench outside the Cambridge Library for two years or something. Right. And there's so many spiritual teachers that tell those types of stories, you know, more or less, if you have that type of dramatic thing happen to you, you're more likely to leave your life and become a spiritual teacher, which is sort of given this public skew 
to what this is like. And, you know, the guy, you know, that works at the meat packing plant in Eden, Oklahoma, uh, who, you know, has a transition and goes back to work at the meat packing plant. Like, you know, he's not in sort of the public consciousness uh, of this type of, even though that's like 99% of people who transition. Right. Um, and so there, there are these odd sort of skews um, around this type of stuff. Uh, you know, the reality is most people transition and they just sort of go on uh, with their ordinary everyday life. It's not a big deal. It is a big deal in the sense that, you know, your identity does change. And that's why I think identity is really the right word for it. Um, and so the narrative self is, you know, pardon? What does it change to? Well, I think that depends on the person oftentimes because there's a lot of there's a lot of sociocultural environment that they're embedded in and a lot of programming uh, that's been associated with that. And it also depends on how, where their transition occurred. Right. And so, like, you cannot have ever been Christian, but have this powerful transition occur in a church. And you may wind up being a very dogmatic Christian on the other side of that. And specifically that strain of Christianity, you know, um, or you might have been a Christian for your entire life and have this profound experience walking in a forest one day and never visit a church again. Um, right. And so there's all sorts of flexibility in in terms of what happens to people on the other side of this experience, both in relation to how when the experience happens and how it takes hold, um, the strength of it, their prior programming, um, and whatnot associated with it. One thing that we find fascinating is that most people who have a transition to this wind up, if they were religious before, they wind up not being religious oftentimes afterwards. And so if you were to just, you know, look across our data where we asked people in the early phase of the research, um, which was a lot of over a thousand people, you know, you know, what were you before and what are you now? Uh, before they often listed a religion, you know, that they were associated with or affiliated with. And then after they did not. And they would say, you know, well, I'm spiritual, but not religious or I'm even agnostic or I'm, you know, whatever. But not if, you know, it happened in their church, probably. Right. right, or, right. or not if they're, you know, a monk embedded in a system, uh, they're, they're generally still embedded in that system at their monastery, right? Uh, or whatever else. And so it's, it's a lot of circumstantial type stuff uh, in terms of what you're, and it also relates to where you fall on the continuum of different types of this experience. Well, let's, um, let's talk about that because our yeah. listeners, most of them haven't taken your course. So uh, you, you lay out that there's like four places that people typically transition to for you could call locations. them you call them locations i could call them uh four different types of consciousness and that they're really different experiences ways of experiencing life and i'm wondering if you could like really briefly just in a couple sentences mention what might be a hallmark of each of those four locations and and what percentage of people are like, do you find most people are in, in one and less than four? How's that work? Great question. Yeah, most are in one, fewer in two, fewer in three, fewer in four. And it goes beyond four, of course. Mm -hmm. uh, but most most people that you encounter that are in fundamental well-being are in, you know, one through four somewhere, usually in one or two. Um, and in fact, we've encountered a lot of people over the years who thought they were in four who are really in two. Mm -hmm. Um and so one hallmark of whether or not you're even on this continuum of different types of experiences or not is um, 
whether or not you've had an internal shift away from what is really the normal sense of, of humanity, which is just the normal sense of all animals. Um, and that is a, primarily a survival driven instinct, right? That um, something, it basically feels like something in this moment is not right. And so it may be a very, you know, background sort of sense, but there's always kind of something on guard, you know, it's something, there's some sense that something might not quite be right in this moment or the moment that immediately follows it, or maybe 10 years from now, uh, you know, or whatever else, right? And what happens with this shift is really a fundamental rewiring of that old programming, which doesn't really make any sense for people in developed countries today. Um, you know, I mean, sitting in this room, I'm pretty safe, right? Uh, you're pretty safe in the rooms that you're in. Um, most people that are listening to this are in a very safe environment. So why do we have that? Why are we like a bird, you know, that pecks at a crumb on the ground and then immediately starts looking around for what's going to kill it or try to steal its food? Uh, you know, it's not going to happen to us in the next minute. It could happen to that bird, right? But it's not yeah. going to happen to us. Um, and so there's this transition that happens to a sense where everything is really fundamentally okay. Um, now, that doesn't mean that if your wife comes home or your husband comes home and says, I'm going to divorce you and I'm taking all the money and the kids, that it doesn't feel like a tiger is ripping your arm off. Um, or your boss looks across the table at you and says, you're fired. And not only that, but I'm going to ruin you and make sure you never work in this industry again, you know, or whatever, right? Yeah. Um, these things, it might feel like your boss has taken out a gun and shot you, you know, it might feel like a mortal wound of some kind, but that's just, you know, modern life mapping itself onto this old system. You know, you're, you're not in jeopardy, really, in either of those situations, right? There's like another 2 billion potential spouses out there for you, right? Um, there's, you know, infinite amounts of jobs and work and opportunity and whatnot, uh, things that you can do in our economy, right? Um, and so realistically, it's, it's false. Um, you have this ancient system that probably made sense for humans, you know, a thousand or 2000 or 300,000 years ago when we first emerged or whenever, just like it makes sense for any animal that wasn't at the top of the food chain and hadn't really sort of dominated their environment. But we have now, really. And so, you know, this, I think, is really an upgrade to what humans should be experiencing the world like because the world our fundamental reality in every moment is that things are safe and is that things are pretty much okay i mean you have to work pretty hard to starve in a developed nation these days right there's a lot yeah. of social systems that are keeping you alive uh you know the, you, in america we have the fda keeping our food safe i'm very unlikely to die from you know some sort of foodborne problem tomorrow right so that was something that 100 years ago wasn't true but it's true today right? I mean, modern medicine, think of where that was 500 years ago versus today, right? I mean, even in the 50s, right? If you got a heart condition, you were probably going to die from it. Um, and now you're they're going to keep you alive in miraculous ways. You know, you're probably not the thing you're going to die from, right? right. Um, so, so and so, so all of these support these locations, yeah. what these locations, uh, like, you know, a lot of our listeners are probably wondering, am I in any of these locations? Sure. What sure. could you say that would tell them, oh, okay, that's maybe where I'm at. I'd say, you know, you can go to our website and uh, there's a paper there that outlines these. 
Um, uh -huh. It's it's it, kind of an academic -y paper, but you can just skip to the section that summarizes these things. Um, and the website or is? it's also in the book. And so if somebody really wants a lot of detail, more than we have time for today, you can get to those, right? But so this first thing is this is this shift is this shift to a sense that deep down somehow, even if it makes no sense, even if you're going through all sorts of emotional turbulence on the surface because your wife just walked out the door, your husband just walked out the door. If you stop and look down to the base of your experience in that moment, somehow things are okay. You know that somehow things are still okay. It doesn't make any sense. It might feel like the world is falling apart, but somehow things are okay, right? So that fundamental shift is really location one, but it also goes across all of the other mm -hmm. locations. And other things that happen in location one are falling off of, you know, the negative self-chatter. Um, so as you deepen in location one, generally speaking, the less negative self-chatter uh, someone has, you know, negative emotions fall off more rapidly. You have the, the self-chatter being less likely to basically less likely to have an emotional stickiness um, to it. Um, you see memory changes oftentimes and, and a little bit, and especially as it relates to like memories coming up, you know, probably memories aren't popping up as much as um, they had in the past. Your, your own story probably appears, uh, your life story appears to be less important than it was uh, before. Other people's stories appear to be less important, things like that. Location two just sort of deepens all of that uh, and takes all of that further, but it adds a perceptual shift into what people call non-dual perception, which is sort of like a unification of subject and object. It's often how it's uh, described. Um, it can just sort of feel like everything is just one thing as um, another way of thinking about it. But it's, a, it's kind of non-duality light compared to what's experienced at another location. And that's why those two, can, those two locations, location four is the other location. That's why those two locations often get confused uh, because they both have a non-dual uh, sort of component to them, right? Location three um, is very much like the classic end of the Christian mystical tradition or the Sufi tradition in Islam, um, or even some a bit more or less the end of the mystical tradition, all the Abrahamic traditions. Some of the Buddhist stuff talks about it. Some of the Hindu stuff uh, talks about it. And it's where you have sort of one emotion and it's kind of a combination of a few different facets. So it feels like a combination of um, sort of impersonal or divine could be some people get the impersonal version. Some people get the divine version love and sort of joy and compassion, things like that. And at any given time, one of those facets is usually a little bit more forward. So love might be a little more present in the experience, joy, and the other ones might be a little bit more in the background um, at any given time. And those might, those can change, you know, situationally. And again, some people get a, some people get a sense where there's like a, an increasing union with the divine. And so these are not, this is not a non-dual place um, because you can't feel like you're increasingly getting into union with something else if everything is just one, right? Yeah. Um, and so you have location two being non-dual location. And incidentally, there are other, you know, we're not the first to, to have discovered things like this. I was sitting with uh, John Hagelin one time going over a presentation. We were both speaking at a conference. He's sort of like the main TM guy, mm -hmm. um, transcendental meditation guy. And we were both, you know, he, was, he had a new talk and he was like walking me through the slides um, asking me for feedback on them. And he got to this slide where he had these same four locations, uh, except from TM's perspective, right? And, and he had, this was the only time that I've ever seen, uh, it's written so clearly, but he basically had dual, non-dual, dual, non-dual non written, uh. um, you know, next to each one of those levels. And I'm like, oh, wow, that's really great, you know, because lots of times in the, in sort of the, the, 
new agey or uh, whatever spiritual communities in the West, there's this view that like, once you go non-dual, like the next level after that's got to be non-dual and the next level after that's got to be non-dual, but that's really not what you find. Super non-dual. Yeah. It's, it's not really what you find, you know? And so I was kind of heartened to know that his presentation was drawn from like 5,000 year old something. Right. Right. Um, And you know, they knew that way back then. Right. And so then um, location four, oh, the other side, the other way that location three can appear is it can appear as uh, sort of a panpsychist uh, and sort of a panpsychist centrist. There's a philosophical term that means that sort of like a feeling of like everything is conscious or everything is consciousness, right? And so mm-hmm. if you're not merging with the divine, you don't have some divine flavor to what you're merging with. You're merging with sort of this other um, more panpsychist flavor. And so it's more or less the same thing that's happening in each version of the experience. It just depends on whether or not it's got a divine feeling to it, which probably more than anything relates to whether or not you were programmed to believe, you know, in in divine stuff. Although not always. I read a um, a thing the other day that um, on actually one of our Facebook groups um, from someone that transitioned in location to, I don't actually know if they mentioned the location that uh, no, location three. She said that she transitioned to location three. And, you know, she was a diehard atheist for like her entire life. Uh, and she totally got the divine version uh, yeah. of the experience. And so it's not necessarily that clean or that clear. And so then you have uh, location four, which couldn't be more different than location three. It's like falling off a cliff. Um, if you want somebody to read about this and the transition from three to four, Bernadette Roberts has some great books out there about this. She was probably the greatest living that I know of contemplative mystic of our time from a Catholic tradition standpoint. Um, As she lived in LA, she died maybe a couple of years ago now, but she did, she, you know, location three was like where all of her maps pointed to. Right. And so she Mm -hmm. spent a lot of her time in location three, deepening into location three, as far as she was concerned, she was a successful Christian mystic you know, starting with her Carmelite nun days and whatever else, right? And then one day she just falls off the map into location four and has like no frame of reference for what happened to her. And in location four, you know, so any sense of agency goes away, the sense of the divine goes away, or that panpsychist sense goes away. Imagine it being like all about immersion and union with God one moment and then having God just disappear from your entire experience the next moment, right? I mean, a very kind of traumatic thing uh, to have happened to someone so deeply enmeshed in a belief system like Uh that. And she really spent years wrestling with that um, and trying to fit that into the Christian mystical tradition, the Christian faith somewhere. And she turned out these really, you know, amazing books as she was working her way through that. You know, and so... Location four, there's usually not a sense of agency, which means that the universe is kind of unwinding and universing itself and you're just coming along for the ride. Yeah. There's just a sense of sort of synchronistic unfolding because Uh it doesn't feel like you can do anything. You can't, you don't, you can't, there's, you can't take any action. You're not, even though you're clearly, you know, watching yourself take action and you're hearing the words coming out of your mouth, which are often as surprising to you as anyone uh, in terms of what, you know, is being said. Um, It's tremendous. You know, you're, you're the, any last vestige of that narrative self-mind is essentially gone. Um, emotionality goes. So, you know, even love for your children, uh, even that type of rich parental love disappears. That can sound um, scary, but it's actually people in that experience think it's like the best thing in the world. Yeah, it's a, well, it's a mixed, it's a mixed bag, you know? And so like when people are terrified of this, and this is one of those things where they're like, 
okay, I've read about your locations. I definitely don't want to risk getting into fundamental well-being because what if I wind up in those location four plays? That sounds terrible, right? Yeah. The one thing that you have to associate with location four is the word freedom. More than anything else, if there's a word that's associated with location four, it's freedom. There's a sense of freedom there. It's like the last vestiges of really being limited by other people's thoughts um, and whatnot fall away. It's, it's, um, it's, it's, it's astonishing, but it is, it turns out it is not for everyone. Uh, and so there are people that go there, like uh, a friend of mine, for instance, when he transitioned, you know, he found out about our work and started reading about it. And he's like, Oh, I had that experience. He's a, he's actually a self-help marketer. And, you know, he realized that there was this whole other spiritual marketplace for all of the stuff that he was writing in the self-help place could be sold to, right? Which is a normal thing, you know. Um, a lot of the big self-help publishers also have this division that sells into the spiritual space because it's like mm-hmm. the same copy kind of for both spaces uh, or very similar, you know, ads and stuff for both spaces, right? And so it's a place where they can advance their audiences. And so he was just in the process of doing that. And he one day he read this very first spiritual book. He unfortunately doesn't remember what it was. And he went to bed and he woke up in location four Uh, and he's sitting across the table in the morning from his daughter, not feeling any love for her, thinking this is just not right. This is not how a human being should be. And that's what you have is you have this. And so I say he's thinking, but he wouldn't say he was thinking, right? He would say there was thinking happening in my mind that was like, this is not right. This is not how things should be. And you, and you hear that out of people. And so yes. what winds up happening is in a certain percentage of the population that experience this, they wind up, you know, sort of talking, their brain winds up sort of talking themselves out of location four. Um, and then they find ways to get out of it. And almost everybody finds the same way to get out of it, which is it's in the finder's book. If somebody wants to, I don't know if we want to take time for that, you know, today or whatever, but now, in, in the Finders book, you also most talk people about, though you're right do love location four, and they're like, yeah. and you know, a lot of the the Hindus, uh, you know, Kashmir Shaivism and things like that. You know, this is like the place to get right. You're not you're not in fundamental well being until you're in location four, right? right. Um, and people that are in location four that that really take to it, that's the way they view all they view all of the other locations as not even close to being in fundamental well-being. It's such a totally different place. So location three is often viewed as sort of the peak by by people that have moved to location four, sort of the peak human experience that you can have. And location Uh four is really viewed as something sort of beyond human. Uh And then there's higher locations. And in the finder's book, you don't say much about them because there's so few people who experience it. But you do say that the way people get there is by going more into detail of their experience. I'm wondering, you know, a practical what's a practical way, what does that look like? Does that mean you're going into sensations of your body more specifically? Or what are you what are you looking into with more of a microscope? That's a great question. And this is one of those benefits of some methods, right? So like Terabata noting, for instance, that we mentioned earlier, which is more or less just like labeling your experience in different ways, all kinds of different ways to do that, right? But it's more or less just paying attention in while you're sitting in meditation, even as you go throughout your life, and just labeling experience, Can, you know, making a habit out of just labeling your experiences all the time as fast as you can do it, right? Because of course, there's an infinite amount of stuff that's coming to us that we could be labeling. And so as fast as you can do it, right? If people who practice that type of thing really hardcore mm-hmm. seem to have a greater proclivity 
to advance to beyond location four. And one of the reasons for that is because the type of paying attention that you really have to do to, to get to location, uh, you know, five, six, seven, there are of course many, many ways to do this, right? I mean, you could get to location five, it could just randomly happen to you, um, right? I mean, there's all sorts of people who get to location five in lots of different ways, but in terms of like reliable paths, um, you know, I really only know of a reliable path to location four, for instance, and mostly that's for people who are already in fundamental well-being, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and the same thing with location five. It's like, I've just heard this path again and again and again and again. And so everybody else's stories are kind of random for how they get there, right? But there is this one sort of pathway that seems like a legit pathway into it. And so what that is, is primarily paying attention at a very, very detailed level to one could say the nature of conscious experience itself. And I don't mean that in a mystical way. I mean, in terms of how the brain generates conscious experience, right? So something that happens with Theravada meditators that do this noting stuff I've noticed over the years is that first of all, they can do all kinds of stuff in the lab uh, that other people can't do. Like there's this, there are these experiments where you do these distractor targets where you, know, you basically show somebody a cross or something, and then you will flash something that's really at a subliminal level. It's at a level that for the ordinary person, it would not rise to their level of, they would not see the thing, right? Mm -hmm. But their visual system system will see it. Um, and so it sort of stays at the unconscious level in the brain, but it does make it into the brain. Um, and then you can bias people and how they will interpret, you know, a next thing based on that invisible thing, right? Mm -hmm. But that's not really invisible. So you can take these Theravada meditators into the lab that are really gotten into noting and they'll see the distractor targets, you know, and as they're, as, you know, they'll rattle off the cross and then they'll be like, oh, there's a thing. You know, there's a word that says this and, you know, oh, there's a circle and there's a word that says this, right? And you'll right. be like, how in the hell is that possible? Like we, that should not be possible uh, in the human brain. Like, like we, we think, you know, all of neuroscience has basically taught us in our, in our, in our, you know, college degrees that like, you know, you can't see that that can't rise to subjective awareness. Right. And so there's, they clearly have a conscious process that they have honed in their brains that is slicing things at a much, much, much finer level. It's allowing things that are happening at a much more subtle, much more fine grained things that would be unconscious to me or you, it's not unconscious to them. Right. Mm -hmm. And that allows them uh, to see more of the actual mechanisms of consciousness itself in terms of the brain's conscious mechanisms, right? Like, you know, they, I'll, you'll have conversations with these people and they'll be like, you know, I think I figured out the exact small amount of information in any given time frame that the brain can even process, right? And you're like, how is that even possible? <laughs> how could you so, possibly? So they might be looking at, <laughs> at thoughts, emotions, sensations all at once at like a higher rate speed, yeah. And so, and, and it's, there isn't everything happening all at once to some degree. Right. I mean, when you really get it down, like the brain is like, okay, here's a sound, here's a vision, here's a, you know, whatever else. Right. And so they, it's, and so they, they have been able to get so deeply, you know, into this and they've changed what's possible for them in their own brain and in their own observational um, powers, if you will, or abilities so well that, it, the next turn 
beyond, you know, just saying things like, you know, hey, I think I figured out the maximum information capacity, you know, that my brain can even process. And it's in this tiny amount of time, which I'm not even sure if there's a time scale for. Um, But, you know, they go from saying things like that to being able to observe the process uh, at sort of a next level, even from there. Uh Um, And the more that that happens, the more they go down that road, um, the more likely they are to transition into these later uh, locations. Interesting. It's it's a very time consuming. I would imagine it doesn't sound easy. Uh, Since we only have a little bit of time left, uh, Brian, what what question might you want to jump in with? The only... uh, real question that I have remaining is is about locations. And I just thought, you know, I might as well approach it from a more personal point of view and to see if if other people have described this. Um, I don't really have a sense of having landed in a location, but actually having found something that's always there, something that's in the background of experience, something that that's that can be dipped into. So the little me didn't really land in a location, but the little me discovered that there's a big I that's always there and always available. And I can sort of drop into it at the drop of a hat. And it fills me with, I would say, fundamental well-being, happiness and joy. But I don't have to, I don't feel I have to go around 24-7 it's like it's like I have a water bottle that's infinitely refillable, and whenever I'm thirsty, I can drink it, but I don't have to walk around twenty four seven with it in my mouth. Has any have have you had other uh, in your in your research people describe it that way? Sure, sure. I think that's one thing that over time goes from the background to the foreground, uh-huh. uh, oftentimes for people as well. Mm-hmm. Um, there's I try to remember the URL off the top of my head. I think it's H. E A I dot non symbolic dot org. Um, and there's a quiz there that people can take to basically walk through the same types of questions that, you know, if I'm, if I'm really trying to figure out where you're at, we're going to sit down for hours, right? Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's going to be at least three hours, probably more like five, six hours uh, to try to really, really figure out where you're at. Uh, maybe even longer than that, right? Uh, it depends on how good you are at sort of teasing out your internal experience and um, and things. I've had some that I thought, oh, this will just take a few hours and I'm there like, you know, 10 hours later. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a there's a series of questions that I will sort of shortcut uh, through. Um, and they they involve things like, you know, if you think about the different locations, right, an, an obvious question for you, you can just sort of work your way backwards through them, right? So an obvious question might be something like, uh, do you have, you know, emotion? Do you have, a, do you have, do you experience emotion? Yeah. So do you experience a mix of positive or negative emotions? Yeah. And so, you know, there goes four, there goes three, right? Right. Sorry, um, Brian. <laughs> well, I didn't. I didn't think I was in four. Definitely not three. But it. Just, but when the positive. And so then the next question is. Yeah, go ahead. Do you? And so that's what I mean. Some of these you can sort of cut off really quickly. You know, with very simple questions. Right. Now that may not be true. It may be that you're not. Because but it wasn't, what happens with no, go ahead. this is your self-reflexivity falls away, right? That voice in your head, that negative voice in your head is also really responsible for self-reflection and self-reflectivity and self-analysis, right? And so for someone that's in fundamental well-being, that's going to fall off. 
Um, and, you know, I'll often sit down even with these, you know, people who had millions of followers or whatever, you know, and had answered zillions of questions about this stuff over the years. I would sit down with them and I would basically say, you know, ask them about their something about their own internal experience. And nobody had really ever asked them that before. Right. And so they would they would just sort of sit there and they would search for an answer. Uh, it was like I was a useful stimulus probe into their conscious experience, right? And then they would come back with an answer to that. And so that, that's part of why these interviews can take so long is because, you know, the things that I'm asking often are like just, you know, things that if somebody is really in fundamental well-being and has really had that self-reflexive capability shut down for a long time, um, it's sort of like I'm having to like poke it back to life um, in a way in order to begin to wind some answers um, out of someone. So the next thing would basically be a question of, um, you know, you can do it with vision or hearing or whatever. Uh, so we can just do it. We can do it with both really. But with vision, for instance, if you look out at the world, um, you know, just, or you're looking at the screen, you're looking at the camera, whatever you're looking at, I don't care what you're looking at. It doesn't matter. When you look, um, how does that show up for you? Right. Does it feel like there is something in here Right, something in your head for people that aren't watching this, that are listening to this as a podcast. Something in your head, right, that is looking out your eyes at the world, like that, like you're here and there's a world out there, you know, uh, and something here is looking out at that world that's out there, right? And so that's one possibility. The other possibility is that when you open your eyes and you look out, it's sort of like everything is just there, and it doesn't feel like there's this thing in my head that's looking out. Um, so the thing in the thing in your head that's looking out, that's not non-duality, right? You're not in, it's not all one thing, right? And so if you open your eyes and it's all just sort of there, it may or may not be non-duality. I have another question about that, right? That then goes, <clears throat> that then sort of teases that out a little bit more because it can all still be showing up out there, but you, that doesn't necessarily mean you're a part of what's showing up out there. And that's a particular type of mysticism. It's kind of in the direction of, you know, sort of full-on non-dual non-dual perception or whatever else but it, but it's still not quite there right so it's somewhere sort of on the late phases of location one say where it hasn't sort of tipped over fully uh, into location two uh people like stace and whatnot write about write about this you can see it in their books he's a scholar from the 60s uh around this one of the most important scholars in the area really and so you know how would you how would you say your vision uh is I don't think that my answers would not be binary to these questions. My answers would be, I mean, it doesn't seem either or to me. Well, then tell me how it seems. Sometimes one, sometimes another, or? Yeah. No, when, when, when I or imagine both. that what I'm seeing is just all of me, then I'm flooded with happiness. And when I imagine that uh, I'm a little homunculus looking out, I'm not. It's, it's, it's not like, you know, so it's not binary. It's not like either or. It's like, in other words, and that's what I was getting at when I said I didn't feel like I was landing in a location. I felt yeah. like I found something always available that the little yeah. me could tap into at any time. Mm -hmm as opposed to the little me having landed in some persistent, consistent place that's the same all the time. Yeah, so probably not location two, right? Because that would be a consistent thing in location two. And if you're in location two and you're, and you're sort of trying to imagine the homunculus, um, it's pretty disturbing to do. Uh, 
because it feels it very much feels like what you're doing in your brain is trying to pull yourself out of location two. <laughs> and in fact, if anybody really wants to pull themselves out of location two, that's not a bad way to do it. Right. Um, it's to sure. try to sort of return to there being something in here in their well, head. I would never, I would never do that. I would never do you. that by choice. <laughs> I would never try <laughs> right. to imagine yeah. the homunculus. And most people that are in location two would not either, right? <laughs> um, obviously, if we're talking about a location four person, there will also be non-dual, right? But there wouldn't be a choice for them. They wouldn't be like, you couldn't, you know, it wouldn't be like, okay, now switch to this perception or whatever, right? Uh, where they're like, I think today I'll do this. Um, mm-hmm. Because it feels just sort of like that synchronistic unfolding right so now we know we've narrowed it down to either temporary non-symbolic experience right or fundamental well-being to use the public term for this public podcast or um or some sort of location one type of experience right with 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 access to some sort of location two potential maybe right and so then the question really to answer for yourself is because you can totally modulate in location one, right? So in location one, if you have that sense way in the background, you can totally choose to put your attention on it, right? And bring it to the foreground. Um, but it's not necessarily like when you really deepen into location one and it's automatically sort of more in the foreground or when you're in another location further down the line uh, where it's more in the foreground. Um, but it is accessible, right? Um, and so then the question becomes, this is where it starts to get tricky, where people are very confused oftentimes by whether or not I'm having a temporary experience of this or whether or not I'm having a persistent experience of this. Because in location one, you can absolutely have all kinds of conditioning arise and stuff, right? Um, and that can sort of cloud that background sense um, or suppress, if you will, that background sense. And so the real question is, at any given time, even when you know your spouse has come home and said, I'm taking the kids and leaving you penniless, um, like no matter how bad it is, right? Um, I'm assuming that's bad for most people. There might be some people out there who are like, that'd be great. I could just go to the cave and meditate all day, right? I got to keep in mind the podcast I'm on. But for most people, that's an example of something that would be bad for them, right? Um, And so if that's, if during that, if during really a bad quote unquote thing like that, you can pause and look down and find a sense that everything seems to still somehow, paradoxically in that case, inexplicably, doesn't make any sense, but it still seems like somehow deep down everything is fundamentally okay, um, then, there's a, then the odds are that you're in location one because that's, it's, it's an unperturbable thing at location one deep down doesn't mean it can't be covered over doesn't mean it can't be suppressed doesn't mean it can't be pushed into the background Mm -hmm. depending on how deep someone has gotten into location one um but it'll be there yeah yeah it seems to never go away and it seems like i could be happy even when i'm sad so even when circumstances might be undesirable there's something just there that's just really okay Mm -hmm. yeah exactly so uh, So that's location uh, one what might be the last question um you have so much experience with all these things how do uh people integrate these things into life because a lot of people can find these experiences once in a while but they really compartmentalize it to you know church or meditation christian and really we want to create good human beings we don't want to create just good meditators it's a good question and this, as you know, is a huge part of our current work, 
mm-hmm. and has been for a long time, ever since we had a bunch of people that we transitioned in the early finders course experiments and sent them out to like have their lives straightened out by spiritual teachers and that didn't work out so well. And then we had to sort of create a follow-on research project asking ourselves, okay, what does this look like from an integrate with life sort of standpoint, right? And so the, the, you know, the main problem with it is really that uh, it's the narrative self that is the creator of culture, right? And so fundamentally what you've got is a situation where the world, the cultural world that we all have to live in is of, by, and for the narrative self, the egoic self, whatever you want to think of it as, with all of those tendencies. And so when you transition into this, when you start the transition to this, even at location one or whatever, um, you start to fall out of sync with that in different ways that can be very important uh, to other aspects of your life. Like I mentioned in location one story, an interest in your own story. You know, you probably up until the shift in location one, you've spent almost all of your life trying to build up your story of how great you were. And now you don't really care about that story anymore. But the problem is that you're embedded in a culture where you're more or less required to continue to build up the story of how great you are. Otherwise, something looks wrong, right? You look psychopathological or whatever else, right? Something people, other people, when they're interfacing with you are like, okay, what's wrong with this? Is this really a false humility? Am I being manipulated here somehow? You know, what's going on here? Um, And so to some degree, you have to become aware of what is different between you and other people between, you know, what is it that you've lost with the narrative self that you're glad isn't there anymore, but that you in a way need to pretend is there in different aspects of your life and so on. And so, so that, that, that is really one key aspect of it right and then another key aspect of it and we have some of those things that like a couple hours of free videos people can watch at explorerscourse.com um right which basically is the greatest hits of those things like you know Mm -hmm. after you transition immediately don't immediately go tell your spouse right (laughs) or right think through these things because they're gonna it's gonna sound crazy you know and they're gonna be concerned that like their spouse has gone off the deep end or something Um, and then they're gonna do an intervention with you and your family (laughs) or whatever it's gonna gonna take a course it doesn't have to take that course you know these things don't have to happen right if you if you know to how to address them ahead of time uh other side of it is that there is a process that kicks off in the brain. And the way that I like to think about this is is to think about like there being this, and people that are listening to this can't see this, but I'm holding up my right hand basically in sort of a cupped fashion. And I'm representing with that um, really all of the conditioning that we build up. Mm -hmm. And so if you think about it, we have um, the system that's inside of us all the time that's performing endless experiments. Like wherever you're listening to this, wherever you're watching this, you know, you two guys that I'm talking to, me, um, you have no idea why you're sitting the way you are, right? You have no idea why your feet are in the position they're in right now, no idea why your hands are in the position they are right now. I have no idea why I'm gesturing with my hands in certain ways, right? That was an intentional gesture, right? But, but all of the other times when I haven't been intentionally gesturing, you're like, I have no idea why that's happening, right? Why it's happening is because there's the system in us that is constantly performing experiments and observing the reactions to them. And so the way I'm inflecting my voice, the way I'm sitting, um, you know, the way I'm gesturing, all of these things are ripping off of me looking at you two, 
Um, you know, I've got a fairly sophisticated studio set up here because I do a lot of this stuff, right? And so I'm looking at you in a teleprompter right now, right? And I'm watching you and I'm watching your reactions. And my system is essentially reacting to your systems. And it's taken this whole body of knowledge that it's learned over the years of, okay, you know, when Jonathan gives you that face, try this. And then, you know, that'll pull them back in or, you know, whatever, right? Um, And so, we're all, we all have this insane amount of programming and reprogramming that's happening in every moment of our lives that govern all of our lives. And so I represent that really sort of by this sort of cupped right hand. Uh, and, it's, and it's what you and I are mostly communicating with. You know, we're mostly just communicating out of these rote programmed habits in our nervous system, period, right? It's why you don't know why your feet are in the position that they're in right now uh, or anything else, right? Um, And so, but that's not the whole story, right? But that is a persistent layer of conditioning. And and unless you have an Eckhart Tolle style transitioning experience, right? Uh, Where you wind up, you know, totally knocked off your socks. And I I think of those as actually pathological experiences. You don't want to have that type of a transition experience. You don't want to have your life disrupted, you know, to that degree. But that level of disruption of life can absolutely affect that otherwise very static layer of programming condition. In the same way that if you're driving along in a war zone and your Jeep blows up, you know, some of the soldiers in there will have their will have that very rigid layer of conditioning scrambled in a very negative way. And we call that, you know, post-traumatic stress syndrome, right? And yeah. others will have it trans and others will have it scrambled in a very positive way. And that Jeep blowing up will be the best thing that ever happened to them in their life, right? And we call that by a different acronym in psychology, which is like post post-traumatic peak order or something like that. Yeah. Um, right. It's got a couple of different ways that people refer to it. And not very many people study that version of it because the military isn't handing out a billion dollars to study that every year. Right. Yeah. They're just trying to keep the other guys from not killing themselves when they come home from war or whatever. Right. And so one of these things is really well funded and really well understood. And the other thing is just sort of this anecdotal thing that people talk about. Um, right. And so in a way, someone like Tole had one of these powerful peak experiences that was on the positive side. Uh, but they take a lot of reintegration, just like, you know, the negative side of your Jeep blowing up takes a lot of psychological reintegration. And they're not that neither one of them is especially healthy. They're healthy maybe in the long term after that integration. Um, but they're not really that healthy right after it. Right. Yeah. And so well, if you people, think about that, pardon, well, let me, let me just say, so we have this yeah. conditioning yeah. along with the awakening Mm-hmm. And how do you suggest that people deal with all that conditioning so in a way that doesn't disrupt their life so that they can bring more of the awakening in there? Right. And so let me give you the mechanism, right? And okay. so essentially what seems to happen is you've got, now I'm holding a fist up behind that hand for those of you that are just listening to this. Um, and so essentially what you have is think of this as the narrative self, the fist as the narrative self, right? Mm-hmm. There is a constant information flow back and forth. So as a stimulus comes out here, oh, Jonathan is scowling. Uh-oh, you know, I better do something, right? Oh, what's the scowling response to Jonathan? Or Jonathan is smiling. What's the, you know, what's the, 
what's the response to that, right? The, when that stimulus is hitting here, there's still a feedback loop that's happening. This is always being reprogrammed. It's always being adjusted. Can I make Jonathan smile even more? Hey, let's test the last thing that I did. And maybe if I move my hand a little bit, an inch more to the right, he'll smile more this time, right? Or whatever, right? So there's this constant optimization that's sort of happening in the system. And that's happening in communication in the background with this fist, with this narrative self part, right? And so there's a part of the narrative self that is programmed into that conditioning layer. It's not all just, you know, neutral stimulus response in the world based on, you know, Jonathan's reactions to this or that thing that I'm saying, or other things that, you know, other people's reactions or other things that are happening in life, you know, my dog's reaction to me or whatever, right? And then imagine now what happens with fundamental well-being is this, 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 there's this transformation on the back end, right? And instead of the narrative self that's being looped into that process of programming, you have instead the fundamental well-being identity, whatever that is, mm-hmm. right? The mechanism is still there. Now, but now when there's a stimulus and it hits out here, Jonathan's smiling, right? And that communication loop happens back and forth between, you know, you, in essence, this deeper sense of you, whatever that's showing up as, even if you're saying there's no you, I don't care, whatever you want to call it, um, right? That's now programming this out here. It's it's, it's starting to insert its um, feedback into that, mm-hmm. right? It's, mm-hmm. And so what you have initially, unless you go through one of these crazy pathological type of transitions, is you when after you transition, mostly your conditioning is still intact. And the conditioning is mostly still intact from your narrative, from being in cahoots with your narrative self, right? And so you have all of these stimulus response, you know, your wife can still totally get under your skin, or your husband can still totally get under your skin, they know all those buttons that they knew to press before they're still there, right? Or a lot of them are still there, some of them burn off in the transition, but plenty of them are still there, right? Uh, You still like shrimp as your favorite meal, or what, you know, whatever. Uh, And so there's a lot of programming that's still in place there. Over the first couple of years after your transition, there's a massive amount of reprogramming that happens as just the conditioning of your life takes place. Uh, the reconditioning of your life takes place, if you will. And so you're constantly being bombarded by stimulus. The system is constantly being, you know, it's in a liable state. It's in a flexible state. Uh, and so it's, it's constantly being reprogrammed. Now it's, it's sort of, removing the inputs that it had from your narrative self and it's replacing it with the inputs from the fundamental well-being version of self again not wanting to insult people who think there's no self however you want to think about that or envision that i'm totally fine with it um and so you've got this reprogramming process that takes place and those two years wind up being that process takes place for the rest of your life basically right Mm -hmm. but in these two years those two years wind up being supremely important because you can ultimately choose to do one of a couple of things. You can either just fall totally into that. And it feels totally, the thing that feels the most natural is to just be hands off that process, right? Just let it go. Just sink as deep as you can into fundamental well-being. Just let that reprogramming happen. Um, and, you know, whatever, you know, God is guiding it. The universe is guiding it. Something bigger than me is guiding it, which is true. It's outside the mind, right? So something bigger than you is absolutely guiding it, whatever awareness, whatever the mind is sitting in. Um, so, but I think of these as brain processes. And so you have all these unconscious brain processes and stuff that are, in, that are you're in essence allowing to guide it, right? And that can turn out really, really well for some people. And that can turn out really not so great at all. For some people. And so you have, you know, you have people that make a decision, for instance, that, geez, when I come home, you know, 
my spouse is there pushing my buttons. Um, like I don't want my peace suppressed. I want my peace maximized all the time. So I'm going to leave my spouse. Uh, and that happens all the time with fundamental well-being, right? Because nobody has told them, listen, just stick it out for a couple of years. You know, you'll be just as happy that you did as leaving, but you'll have been there for your kids or whatever. You know, it probably mm -hmm. is better for the other people. Think about the other people involved, not just your own peace optimization. And so what often happens to someone, especially in the spiritual space, because they've been looking for this thing for a long time. They've heard about it. They know what it is. Now it's happened to them and they prioritize it and they prioritize it above everything else. And so while they're in this deconditioning process, they're like getting rid of everything that they can possibly get rid of to maximize peace. And they and you can wind up with sort of very dysfunctional reprogramming of that outer layer. And so what I really encourage people to do during that couple of years is keep your job, keep your marriage, like all these things that you feel like you shouldn't be doing because they don't feel like they're in sync with you anymore. What you're really experiencing is you're experiencing the old narrative self-programming of how the, the frustrations you used to have at work, uh, yeah. right? Well, now, you know, you're at work, you're being stimulated, that outer layer is being stimulated. It's bringing up those frustrations. The easiest way to not experience those frustrations is to eliminate the stimulus, which is to no longer go to work. Right. Uh, right. But if a couple of years from now, you've just kept that job, you'll find that a lot of that is reprogrammed and you're at work with the same stimulus and you're in peace and you still have your career and your income and you're not sleeping under a bridge. Right. <laughs> and so it just like there's just sort of better ways to, 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 to sort of approach this or think about this and deal with this. And then there's yeah. a seven year cycle as well that that two years is part of. And by the end of that seven year cycle, really, there's been a deep tranching of a lot of that. Yeah. Uh, stuff a lot of your like if, if people can, does that make sense yeah mm -hmm. people can yeah. stick with uh really a natural process as their identity shifts that things become deconditioned and the problem becomes if people really try to uh take down their old life and now they have to deal with things like uh money issues job things that aren't stable people need a grounding in order to have this deconditioning happen in a in a good way and I think that's important. I mean, it's a nice problem to have that you're so into peace that uh, you you basically have a hard time remembering your zip code. Uh, but hopefully <laughs> most people don't have that problem. I want people to have access to some of your research. And I know you have a website besides the 45 days to awakening.com. You have a bunch of research. What would be uh, the best website for that? Nonsymbolic.org. All okay. one word, nonsymbolic. Okay. And then there's the Finder's book, uh, which is incredibly useful and has a lot of information. Um, any last words you want to say to our, our listeners about, uh, uh, I don't know, advice for moving forward? You know, I yeah, I do. I think, you know, just want to impart two different ideas. One is I think it's very important to realize this is a lot more accessible than maybe most people in the spiritual space believe it is. It's not about years or decades or lifetimes. If you look at 45 days, which is a six week program, and then another 45 days, and then the, the, the sort of, you know, if you don't wake up in one of those, the counseling or coaching sort of thing that we've been putting on the back of it, we've, we're, we're well over 90% success rate mm -hmm. across these programs and sort of transitioning people. And that would all happen within in under three, four months, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so I think one of the one of the things that people have is this is this thought, 
this isn't possible for me. Uh, and we've done this to thousands of people all around the world, all walks of life. I, I, don't, I think it's totally possible, you know, for people at this point. The second thing is that fear, right? Oh, I don't want this to screw up my life, right? It doesn't have to screw up your life. It's like a tenth of a percent of people or something that are going to have some crazy experience that has them sitting on a park bench outside the Cambridge library. Mm. You know, the vast majority of people that go into this, they just go on and they continue to live an amazing life. Uh, and it's so much better to live life from this place. So don't let that fear, um, you know, affect you. And if you do wind up in the Cambridge library scenario, there's a lot of people out here that can help you to get out of that and, and shift to another, you know, place, location three, two, one, whatever. You don't have to be stuck in that place. Yeah. Um, and so it's, it, it's, it's, I just think we're now at a time where it's accessible and it's safe and it's possible on these things, these things that hold people back from truly experiencing life as it can be experienced and lived. Um, I just don't think they're, you know, they're that necessary. Yeah, and the world could sure use a few more awakened people right now. <laughs> well, there's certainly a lot of people that could use to be awakened. <laughs> yeah, that, the other part is definitely true too, you know? Yeah. It's just so Any much better. Yeah. yeah. Any last words uh, you want to say, Brian? That's beautifully summarized. And I'm so grateful that uh, that we got to delve deep into so many facets of it and that are listeners are are uh, are now exposed to this so thank you very very much yeah thank you for spending all the time and for putting it out there in a way that is accessible to people you know with your courses obviously affected me and a bunch of people i care about so so thank you for that and uh well, thank and you guys so keep much. Up, keep I, up the good work. And I can say uh, the same to you. I mean, congratulations on such an amazing podcast. You're like a year and a half into this or something. Well, thank and you. It's yeah. just, it's huge. Like it's infecting and impacting so many people. So, you know, my kudos to you on your work as well. Mm -hmm. And now they know that's Brian's book, you know, congratulations on an awesome book, Brian. That's oh. a great, <laughs> thank so you congratulations so much. to you guys as well. Like I'm so impressed by what you guys are up to. Yeah, it's well, great. it's great, great when we hear. can uh, support each other and and uh, during a time where people are going through so much difficulty, know that there's the present moment is like a portal to the world of peace and uh, it's available to everybody now. So mm -hmm. um, people have your website, 45 Days to Awakening, uh, nonsymbolic.org is right, is it .org? Yeah. And uh, feel free to... If you have any more questions for Jeffrey, uh, email them to us and we'll pass them on. And till next time, keep exploring. Keep exploring. Thank you for listening to Awareness Explorers. To learn more, you can check out our website at awarenessexplorers.com. Please subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast app. We'd love it if you would post a review. And please share our link on Facebook and with family and friends, because knowing yourself as awareness is the greatest gift you can give yourself or someone you love.